Hello, I'm Kelly Proctor, the president of DMV Healthcare USA Incorporated. Thank you for joining us for this episode of our podcast, RX for Hospital Quality. It's my privilege to introduce podcast host, Simile Miller. Hello, healthcare world. Welcome to this edition of RX for Hospital Quality. I am your host, Simile Miller. Uh, today, we have uh, something that has been highly requested, uh, and we have a special guest. You know, I love it when we have guests on. We have Clint Butts joining us. Clint is going to introduce himself in just a moment, but the topic for today is it's actually going to be a three-part series. Uh, so for the next three podcast recordings that are released every week, we are going to cover the high points, uh, the critical information that has changed in the NIHO standards for critical access hospitals. I do want to emphasize this is for the changes that were approved by CMS. Uh, Clint will talk about the effective dates and all of that in just a minute, uh, but I just want to really emphasize, guys, this is for the critical or the critical access hospital NIHO standards. We are in the process and we have revised the acute care standards, but those are still under approval from CMS. So we're still waiting for those to be officially approved and released by CMS. So more to come on those as soon as we uh, have that information. But this is for the critical access hospital NIHO standards changes in this new revision. Um, so with that being said, Clint, welcome back to the podcast. Do you want to introduce yourself? Thanks, Emily. Uh, it's good to be here again. My name is Clint Butts. I am the Fiscal Environment Representative of the Standards Applications and Interpretations Team, or the SAI team, to make it easier so I don't fumble over all those words. <laughs> And, you know, in healthcare, we love acronyms. So how can we have anything without an acronym? Um, with that being said, Clint is going to speak on the physical environment um, revisions to the NIHO standard for critical access hospitals. Uh, the next two podcasts, we will have Nicole on talking about the generalist components, those ancillary services and quality. And then we are also going to have Anne-Marie, who's the third leg in the SAI team, uh, speak on the clinical revisions to the new, um, to the revisions to the NIHO standards for critical access hospitals. So why don't we start with this, Clint, if you wouldn't mind, can you tell us the, what revision number uh, uh, this new standard is and the date that it's effective, the date that hospitals must be compliant. All right. Well, the new standard is revision 23-0. So that's pretty easy to remember. It's 2023. The effective date of these is going to be July 15th, 2023. So we've got probably that's about another month and a half or so. Uh, um, we had put these out with 60 days notice. If you haven't already seen a copy of these, you can go ahead and access them from the DNV Healthcare website. I think Simley can somehow uh, remember what site address that was. I don't know it offhand. Yeah, I, let me just tell you guys real quick. It, just if you go to dnvhealthcare.com, um, it will take you to have the option to click on the advisory notices. There was an advisory notice um, released. Um, let's see, Clint, was it May 16th? We released the advisory notice. Um, the advisory notice is really helpful. If you are a hospital who is not receiving these advisory notices, you're going to want to sign up. This is how we communicate 
communicate to our clients changes, such as uh, not only revisions to our standards, but also various different things that CMS comes, rules and regulations, memos they come out with throughout the year. This is how we communicate to you guys. So advisory notice, it's 23, or I'm sorry, 2023-HC04, and it was released on May 16th. So in there, um, like I said, there's a lot of links um, and helpful information that will get you through what those revisions are. And I do want to point out that when you look at the new standard, when you do access that, you can access that again through that advisory uh, notice. Um, When you look at it, what's in blue is the revision. So if you're like, oh my God, the standards, you know, that's quite a few pages, just a few pages. Uh, Joking, it's quite a few pages. And how do we know what's changed? All of our changes are denoted in blue. Uh, So that's how you would know. So uh, with that being said, thank you, Clint, um, for that information. Uh, If you have any questions, of course, you can contact us directly or through the client uh, Dropbox, DMV, clientdropbox.dmv.com. But Clint, let's jump into these uh, physical environment um, revisions. So tell us, what has changed? What, what, What can we anticipate? Okay. Well, I'll just go ahead and start in order of the, of the physical environment standards. I'm going to go ahead and start at PE1. Before I do that, though, I do want to point out, we're not going to talk about the little grammatical changes that we've done. You know, we tried to clean up some of the language, you know, punctuation, all sorts of things, you know, the grammar police, um, you know, to want to make sure everything's as under, most, as, is as understandable as possible. So we did some changes like that, but we're not going to talk much about those. But in PE1, which is facility, uh, there are a few changes that were made, not really anything significant to the actual standard, um, just some clarifications in there. But in the interpretive guidelines, we've gone ahead and given some additional information to help. Uh, we have gone ahead and pointed out that when we do our annual reviews of effectiveness, effectiveness of physical environment plans, that those are expected or should be done within 90 days at the end of your annual cycle. So if you have an annual cycle that ends on January 31st, you know, the resulting evaluations and any changes to policies, plans, procedures that are come out of that evaluation should be completed by May 1st. So it, it always been a question. We want to make sure the real goal is to make sure that these things are done in a timely basis so that your evaluations can help you move forward with what you need to be doing. Another thing we've also done is we've added a lot of interpretive guidance around facility equipment. This information actually came out of PE7, where it was intermixed with medical equipment requirements. And in some situations, the person in charge of facilities wouldn't be looking in PE7 in some situations. So one, make sure it was clear what the expectations are for maintenance of physical equipment. Lastly, with that, one of the important parts of that, because I think the maintenance portion is going along pretty well, but the last part of that in terms of guidance is information regarding equipment inventories and what needs to be done on that. That is something that we see that's not really where where it could be, where it could use some improvement a lot of places. And that improvement is not just to help us do our survey. That improvement, that change is to help you all be able to keep track of everything on a more on a better basis and keep track of the maintenance schedules and things like that and get a true understanding of, of what's going on. 
That, that makes sense. And is that all the kind of highlighted changes that we have in PE1? Yes, that's really getting away. That's about it. Yeah. Okay. And now remember, guys, we're just doing high level. Podcast is only roughly 30 minutes, so we can't get into all the details, but you can find more information um, when you actually look at this new standard requirement. All right, Clint, so tell us anything in PE2, life safety. PE2 does have some new requirements in it, actual new requirements in addition to some interpretive guidance. Uh, the new requirements, again, uh, the first one comes under PE to SR5. And that's where we're putting in a requirement, or we did put in, uh, that uh, the critical access hospitals have drawings that depict the current locations of the life safety features, like your smoke barriers, suite designations, uh, smoke compartments, various things like that. It's one of the tools that we need so that you can show that, so it's basically objective evidence on various things like smoke compartment size, suite size, exit pathways. There's a lot of reasons that it needs to be there and that you need to have it. Um, you know, there's a requirement that's been existing for a barrier protection program. If don't have any idea where the smoke and fire barriers are, it's gonna be hard to implement that. So it circles hand in hand with some of the existing stuff. Should be noted that those drawings don't need to be professionally produced. It could be the original building drawings. It could be drawings that you all do on your own. We're not requiring any special format on them. They just need to be accurate and identify what um, what we're seeing. We added in SR7, which is where we cover fire drills, but we added a new requirement. It's really a further explanation, um, and it deals with an SR7C the operating room fire safety training and fire safety exit drills that are required in operating rooms. That comes out of NFPA 99. Sometimes it gets missed a little bit, the requirements on that. So we decided to go ahead and put it into the standard under life safety. And under SR9A, there's been a lot of confusion about what, believe it or not, what the frequency of fire extinguisher checks are. How often am I supposed to inspect them? Is it every 30 days? Is it is it once a month? Uh, you can actually do the math sometimes and realize that if you try to do it um, every 30 days, you would end up doing 13 inspections. Uh, we clarified the intent, and basically fire extinguishers are going to be are required to be inspected at least once per calendar month within 30 with no more than 31 days between inspections. So you should be able to get it done then. You've got to watch February and time things out for February, <laughs> uh, but it does give you some flexibility in there too. You don't have to worry about getting them done on the weekend because it's, you know, you could, you could believe it or not do them closer than 31 days. You don't have to stretch it out. You could do them every 25 days. Yeah. So whatever works out. So you only have to look at them once per calendar month. We've updated a little bit in the interpretive guidance also. Um, we put in some extra information about remembering that the life safety code and the CA requirements apply to all your locations. Anything that's under the hospital license doesn't have to be a hospital building and we'll apply the appropriate chapters of NFPA 101, the life safety code and of NFPA 99. So, and the la one last thing. Okay, okay. Yeah. Uh, a lot of times people wonder how often do you have to do your 
you know, weekly testing? How often do you have to do monthly testing? How often do you have to do quarterly testing of your fire alarm and sprinkler systems? We have gone ahead and put in interpretive guidance. This used to be in PE1, but we've put in the frequencies that we're going to follow for testing maintenance of life safety systems. That And so basically, they'll tell you that quarterly is four times per year with a minimum of two months and maximum of four months. So you got some leeway in there. And that these come straight out of NFPA codes. Um, so as long as, unless the code has a more specific code that says exactly 30 days or something like that, you, you can apply these frequencies. So that'll help out a little bit with trying to schedule in all of your uh, testing, maintenance, and inspection processes. Kind of like your own little roadmap now built right in yeah. there. Yep. Is okay. that it or is there more? That, for... that, that's it. Now, I'm, I'm kind of excited about the next one. Uh, P3 is often about staff safety. And, you know, without even looking, I'm going to imagine that based on everything that's happened over the last couple of years, that if there's any changes in P3, it's probably regarding the environment. Um, so let me see if I'm right. So, Clint, what, what do we have changed in P3? Well, the besides uh, moving one piece of information from PE2 to PE3, the interpretive guidelines of PE3 uh, is where a couple of the changes are. One of them is that under PE3, under uh, SR4, we require that cause require the cause, maintain environment free of hazards, <laughs> and manage staff activities, reduce the risk of occupation-related illnesses and injuries. So that's basically applying OSHA. However, there are a lot of hospitals out there that the strictness of OSHA doesn't actually apply to. So we are placed into the interpretive guidance that we expect that organizations, regardless of ownership, including government-owned facilities, provide a safe workplace and have processes to prevent occupation illnesses and injuries by meeting at a minimum OSHA requirements or their equivalent. So basically, you know, if OSHA has a lockout tagout program, you have to have some sort of a lockout tagout program to keep people from being electrocuted. Uh, so, uh, you know, we want to make sure that that's out there and everything. You know, the actual NIHO standard never actually said OSHA. It right. said safe environment. So this sort of spells out a little bit because we have to turn to those sources of information for for what, what needs to be done safely. And, you know, one of the gold standards out there is OSHA. So we are going to go ahead and apply that, those general principles everywhere. So they're now applicable to all hospitals. Yeah, but they don't have to follow the OSHA. They could follow something else equivalent, come up with their own sure. program. They don't have to, you know, um, you know, it doesn't necessarily have to completely be written like the OSHA written plans are, but um, the, the basics need to be there. Okay, and that makes sense. Uh, you can't have nothing. <laughs> you have to have processes uh, in place. So completely makes sense. Anything else under PE3? No, PE3 didn't have much other change in it. In that okay. couple of periods here and there. All right. And so what's next? What other standards? Is it PE4 okay. have any changes? We go on to PE4 security management, and security management does have some changes in it. Okay. So one thing that we're doing under security management is, is that – hospitals, a new requirement or SR1A is that the critical access hospitals are going to have to conduct a security vulnerability assessment and implement procedures and controls in accordance with the risks identified that. 
That's actually a helpful thing. You have to, yeah, how do you, what do you need to do for security in a critical access hospital? Well, if you do a security vulnerability assessment, that will help tell you. Now, we have given in the interpretive guidance a couple of sources. You could look at NFPA 99, because they have in their healthcare chapter a section on. Uh, security vulnerability assessments under security. Um, the IAHSS uh, gives guidance on that. Uh, so there's a lot of sources out there for information to help you develop the security vulnerability assessment. And also overall, we're trying to just even develop your program. The interpretive guidance can help lead you through NFP 99 and a couple other sources can help lead you to developing a um, good security program for your critical access hospital. The other thing that we've done is under SR3A, we've put in SR3A, and basically rather than just saying that you have to have a workplace violence prevention program, we are actually requiring that your program be based on guidelines from the current edition of the OSHA Guidelines Preventing Workplace Violence for Healthcare and Social Workers document. It's a great it's the Bible. It's what OSHA will use under the general duty clause if they come to investigate a workplace violence complaint. So, uh, you know, using that document will give you a good solid pattern to at least get the minimums that are in that document into your program. Lastly, it's a small, it looks like a small addition, but under SR3, we've also added in the list of uh, issues that need to be addressed cybersecurity. Now, while we don't expect the security office to be in charge of cybersecurity, it is an issue that needs to be dealt with. So just like any of the physical environment areas, you know, facilities doesn't necessarily own everything within these. Other people have a part, and this is another part of it. And this is basically just overarching that you have to have the policy, have a process to help deal with this. We've gone ahead, and there's not many specifics out there, but we've given guidance to the Health and Human Services um, website on cybersecurity and healthcare, and the, also the National Institute for Standards Cybersecurity Framework website. Those are both great resources to help you develop a program. Yeah, I like that we've done that, um, Clint, because, you know, as you said, cybersecurity is a risk. So in ISO, risk-based thinking, um, if you have cybersecurity and it is a risk to your organization, you have to consider that. Um, we've had hospitals, unfortunately, who have um, lost everything through cybersecurity issues. So it's definitely something that we're all dealing with in all industries. Um to Clint's point, it's there's not a lot yet. Uh, you know, we can't tell you best practices or anything yet, but it is something that um, I, I'm glad that we considered adding that to our standards as yeah. to get you thinking about that potential risk. Yeah. And, you know, the things that we're going to be talking about and and health and human services this is actually already they've actually put into basically United States code that to ask basically folks like CMS to take into account when levy, leveling penalties against a hospital, whether or not they have a cybersecurity program in place. So, oh, wow. um, so while it's not put into a condition of participation yet, there is stuff out there. And that's actually what part of the um, 
405D stuff from HHS has to deal with and that. And so it's not just the ransomware things we've been talking, you know, that we hear about all the time. This is everything from your technology systems, internet connected devices, that's medical devices, access control. And that's where it really ties back into security. Uh, if you have an access control system and you can, and it's networked, it's vulnerable. So how are you protecting that and making sure that somebody doesn't come in and, and deal with that? We're going to talk a little bit more about, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, we're going to talk a little bit more about cybersecurity before we're done with today's little podcast. Okay. All right. All right. More to come. So PE5, I'll jump on you. You're going to ask, what's going on in PE5? Yeah, yeah. Um, well, believe it or not, in PE5, we did not have any significant changes and that. Uh, PE5 covers a lot of material. Uh, and we're constantly looking at it because it talks about this EPA, Department of Transportation, some tie over to the you know, CDC and OSHA and Nuclear Regulatory Commission. Uh, there's a FDA. There's a lot of stuff that can be covered under PE5. But um, in reality, we haven't made a lot of changes to it. We just added some words, making sure pharmaceutical waste is included. Uh, we talked about the handling. We didn't used to say handling. We just said the storage and disposal. Well, yeah, we got to talk about the, you know, the, the the handling of it, the using of it, and the transportation of it. So uh, no real changes, just some clarification so everybody's aware of everything it covers. We did move a couple standards around. I think we swapped SR5 uh, for SR7 around in it, but that's not new information. It was all in there before. Okay. And P6. P6. Emergency management. Wow. After how many years of COVID, um, emergency management, uh, it seems like something we'd all have down. And I think I think we've all been doing pretty good on it related to that emergency. Uh, but under the requirements, um, we actually found something that was missing in our standard before, and that's under SR5E, um, which was the development of arrangements with other hospitals to receive patients in the event that uh, you have to shut your facility down completely. So if you have to evacuate your facility, where are you going to take these people to? What arrangements do you have? Do you have letters of understanding? You know, it can vary. It doesn't have to be a contract. It can be, you know, something very informal, but you need to basically have identified and that facility has to know and say, yeah, you know, if you guys shut down, you know, start coming this way and we'll figure out what to do. Uh, the other thing we've done in... PE7 is we've gone ahead and highlighted in the interpretive guidance a um, few things about the all hazards approach again, uh, making sure that it includes emerging infectious diseases such as the one that uh, that we um, just uh, got through with the COVID-19, um, and also emphasizing again that, and it's been it's always been in there that cybersecurity had been um, had been covered in emergency manager before and it's still there we put it in a couple different areas uh and hopefully you're in your hazard vulnerability assessments cybersecurity, um internet security of your stuff should be listed as something that is looked at and evaluating the hazards for so all right that sounds uh, good yeah so two more standards to go okay yeah. so medical equipment management Medical equipment management really has no changes into the actual standards itself. The addition comes under the interpretive guidance, and this is interpretive guidance that 
Um, you know, we've always required, and it's in the standard that equipment's got to be maintained to ensure an acceptable level of safety and quality. We've added, this shall include provisions for cybersecurity and medical equipment. So again, we same references um, for the HHS 405D website and the NIST Cybersecurity Framework website. Both have a multitude of information. Uh, there's a lot out there these days on it, uh, but you got to think about medical equipment, whether it be networked, whether it has a USB port where somebody could do something to it, whether it's occasionally updated, how are we securing that? So that is it. Uh, well, no, one last thing. Um, you might notice that the alternate equipment management and the interpretive guidance has changed a little bit. We took the facility equipment out. So if you're familiar with the standard in the past, it just looks a little bit different. We also did some reformatting of it because somehow in a previous revision, all the bullets and indentations went away and it made it a hard document to read. So the document became a few pages longer, but it's easier to read now that we reformatted it. Lastly, looking at utility management. Under utility management, we do have a couple of new additions. The first one comes under SR1A. And SR1A is where the utility management system of the car needs to have a water management program to reduce the risk of growth and spread of Legionella and other opportunity pathogens in your building water. This comes from an SNC letter that a lot of us are familiar with from probably 2017 and 2018 about water management plants. Still isn't a COP, but it is still a necessary um, feature. And it's actually, um, CMS actually would write this under infection control under 482, or excuse me, 485. Uh, can't remember the COP for infection control in has, but uh, it would be written under that, but we cover it under utility management. Again, in the interpretive guidance, we go ahead and give you some information to help you develop that through the use of ASHRAE 188 or the CDC, um, CDC framework and toolkits that they have on Legionnaire and other things. The other change that we made is under SR2 is that the utility management system also needs to specifically look at cybersecurity. You're building automation systems, fire alarm system, anything that can be attached. A lot of the stuff now is networked together again. You know, if you can read the humidity on your computer, you know, and can adjust the humidity in the operating room of your computer, how secure is that? Can, can somebody else get into that and get into that system or any other system? So there's a lot of things that um, are subject to, and again, the same references um, from the Health and Human Services 405D website and the NIST Cybersecurity Framework website. Um, I think that's about most of the changes. Nice, nice. Yeah, and as you guys can see, a theme of uh, cybersecurity uh, throughout, which has been, you know, a recognized uh, risk um, that we've spoken about. So, you know, we all know technology is not going away. So to embrace it and continue to embrace it, we have to look at the secure measures. So um, I think that's a long time yeah. coming. Yeah. Yeah, and can I say just one more thing about this revision 23? Revision yes, 23, you know, went to CMS a couple of months ago, and it finally came back. One thing you'll see, and uh, it's 
in case you miss the podcast, the clinical podcast that's going to be coming on, is the standard actually includes the COVID-19 vaccination requirements. Well, in Rev 23, you can now ignore that now that CMS has gone ahead and um, gotten rid of the COVID-19 staff vaccination rule. We just have to wait for their guidance on whether or not we can just take it out or if we're going to have to take it out and send it to them for approval. So luckily, under that section of infection control, you can um, disregard the section on the COVID-19 staff vaccination. Yeah, kind of the it's kind of hard to keep it up with CMS. They they make a change and we add it and then they make a change, take it out. And of course, you know, we don't revise. We don't like to revise our standards any more than necessary because you all have more important things to do than try to keep up with those uh, constant revisions. So we try to be mindful and respectful. And sometimes, you know, CMS just changes the changes their mind or, you know, things happen um, that leads them to additional evidence to determine that um, something does doesn't need to be there that they originally thought it did, you know, and everything changed. COVID's changing so fast that nobody could keep up with that. So I think we kind of anticipated that there would be a little bit of revision around that. Um, so Anna Maria will talk about it on her podcast, but to Clint's point, um, there will be more to come once we receive the guidance. Um, Clint, anything else that you want to? No, I don't have anything. Okay. I think that, right. that's it from the physical environment world. I appreciate nice. Appreciate the time to be able to talk about it a little bit. And as always, you know, questions through the Dropbox are more than welcome, especially as you get more into reading these new standards. And even if it's about an existing standard, you don't have to ask questions just about the new stuff. You can ask yeah. them about the old stuff. Perfect, perfect. And uh, just for everybody out there who may not be familiar, the standard application interpretation team are the ones who answer most of the Dropbox questions. Uh, we, they are, their whole purpose there is to be the gatekeeper of the standards to make sure that the interpretation is consistent. Whatever is said to the client is also how it's interpreted to the surveyor, so that we are consistently uh, giving that that same answer to everyone who asked the question. So to Clint's point, if you have any questions at all, either regarding the new revisions for the critical access hospital NIHO standards or questions about any of our standards, um, even the old standards to Clint's point, uh, you can just drop uh, an email to the DNB client dropbox at dnb.com and they'll be more than happy to answer your question. And Clint, thank you for coming on the uh, podcast and we will look forward to hearing from your other two SAI teammates. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you. And everybody out there, remember, as always, be safe and most importantly, take care of yourselves. And until next time, thank you. Thank you for listening. Rx for Hospital Quality is a podcast produced by DMV Healthcare USA Incorporated. To learn more about subjects covered here or to download any of our standards or requirements, please visit our website at www.dnvhealthcare.com.